This episode is brought to you by GME. Since 1959, GME has been an Australian-owned family company and remains the only Australian manufacturer of UHF CB radios, with their products designed, engineered and manufactured in Sydney's northwest. GME's products cover a range of recreational activities, from fishing to four-wheel driving and touring, in addition to catering for heavy vehicles and agriculture. GME have released a limited edition range of pink products to raise money for the McGrath Foundation to assist in their tireless efforts of funding regional breast care nurses and supporting families in communities across regional Australia. You can find out more by finding them on Facebook, Instagram or at gme.net.au. Listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. This podcast is brought to you by Ariat Australia, the perfect choice for the tough jobs. Ariat boots and clothing work hard, look good, and are so comfortable there's never a need to slow down. Visit ariat.com.au today. When the term serendipity was coined way back in 1754, it was described as the accident of finding something good without looking. Debbie Dowden's life has been shaped by serendipitous moments. The fixed-wing pilot was working as a flight theory instructor when her future husband enrolled in her class. In what can only be described as a whirlwind romance, Debbie soon found herself living 600 kilometres away on a sheep station in Mount Magnet, Western Australia. This is part one of a two-part chat with Debbie, where she tells the story of how she found herself living a life she'd never planned on. But at the same time, it seemed like everything in her life had been leading her there. To start our conversation, I asked Debbie to tell me about the first time she ventured into the outback. Year 11, geology field trip. We we went on a big field trip up to Carawine Gorge, which is not far from Telfer. And I had no concept of the outback really, before we left for that field trip. And I was just a student and, you know, we're, we're driving along in this bus and we had to drive. I remember we drove up the Great Northern Highway and through places like Mount Magna. I do remember Kew because of the beautiful buildings in Kew. Got to Newman. We had a night in Newman, I think. And I really, I'm like looking around Newman. I'm going, wow, this is really, really beautiful country here. Wow, this is, you know, I've never seen anywhere like this and this is the most amazing place. And then we kept going past Newman and we got out to Carawine Gorge and all the time I remember driving towards Carawine Gorge just looking at these huge open spaces and just thinking, this is the most beautiful place I've ever seen. Wow, this feels like home. And um, anyway, 
a week long, we camped at Karawine Gorge and we did a lot of walking, looking at the geology and, you know, filling in texts and eating around the campfire at night. And, and I remember like there was all these lights and there was all these bugs and they kept dropping into the food. So you just sort of don't even look at what you're eating. And I think that's something that's carried me on a few times in later life. But you sitting around in this school trip, not, not looking at what you're eating, but just looking at the surroundings and just feeling like you'd stepped in, into a whole new world. And it, it really inspired me. It really, um, went to the core of my being, this, this incredibly beautiful place that I'd never been and, and wild and remote. And I just, I was, I was captured. I, you know, the outback then became a part of me. Sounds like that was a very pivotal moment in your life. It was hugely influential because it, I really always had a yearning to return to the outback after visiting the country around Telfer. And I just, it's like a, the light switch came on and it illuminated this incredible other Australia that I didn't know existed. So if we skip forward five years though, you were back down in Perth and not in the outback. Tell me about what you were doing down there. I was working at the Royal Aero Club of WA as a ground school instructor for student pilots. So when you do your pilot's license, you start off doing a restricted license and it's not all about flying. There's also exams that you have to pass. So you do your restricted, then you go on to your private, then your commercial, and then you, you take it from there. So as part of your pilot's license, you sit in the classroom and you pass exams and that you can't get your pilot's license without passing the exams. So my job was to teach in the theory classes. So I would teach classes in the evening. There'd be maybe 15 or 20 students in my class. And I'd also take on some students during the day if, the, if they weren't able to attend the evening sessions. Can I ask, going back a step, what led you to want to get your pilot's license? I always had a fascination with flight and I'm always, I kind of, I don't mind taking a few risks and it, there's a bit of adrenaline involved with a pilot's license and it seemed like something that was, it, for a long time, it was just a dream. Then I had the opportunity to go ahead. I had a little bit of money behind me and I thought, what do I really, really want to do in my life? And I thought, I'm going to use this money to learn to fly. Did you, as a child, did you go on flights around Australia or had you been on a plane much before that? No, but my dad, when we first moved to Australia, my dad was the um, head of security for the Commonwealth Aircraft Corporation. So he had an interest in aircraft and I had a, I, I also shared his interest in aircraft and it was just something, something about flying that I really wanted to just try it. I didn't actually think I'd ever get my pilot's license. I remember sitting at the aero club when I first went down to do my trial introductory flight, looking at the airplanes landing and thinking, I can never do that. That looks so hard. I couldn't, and I can, you know, so it was just something that it was started off as a childhood dream or a fascination and an opportunity came up and I took the opportunity and I made it into reality. What was your plan for flying? Was it, did you want to, you know, uh, be at the front of one of those big Qantas planes and do that 
uh, sort of stuff or think about, you know, fighter jets in the Air Force? What did you think you were going to do once you obtained that license? You know, in all honesty, if I could have could have achieved the airline goal, that would have been awesome. That would have been amazing. But I'm self-funding myself through my pilot's license, so it's really expensive. And, and I didn't have access to a lot of money, so it was just little bit, little bit, you know, I can do my restricted pilot's license and then I got enough money now I can do a few lessons for my private pilot's license and then you get the private license and you think okay the next step is going to be the retractable undercarriage endorsement or the constant speed unit or the night flying and it's all so much expense that you just can't do it all at once unless you've got a bit of money behind you so I was just slowly building up and really loving the aviation industry and really loving my career and thinking that yeah if I if I can just keep going maybe I'll work as an instructor for a few years which is a common route to get into the airlines work as a flying instructor and then get on and you know, maybe if I'm really lucky get into airlines but that was one of those far off dreams you know you have to be really lucky to be able to do that or really good so next time any of us get to an airport and you know board a plane and see you know your your Qantas or Virgin pilots at the front of the aircraft we should be thinking they've either taken a long hard slog to get here and chipped away to be able to afford to have the license they've got or they probably have a sugar daddy somewhere yeah yeah okay (laughs) now how do you make the transition from being a student learning to fly to teaching the flight theory to other people. I mean, it's one thing to learn something, but teaching is a whole other ball game. It is a whole other ball game. And, and, um, I was at uni doing my pilot's license at extra no money, <laughs> like really living on two minute noodles then. And I finished uni and I decided to do a dip ed so I could become a teacher while I was doing my dip ed. I was hanging out at the aero club all the time because that's what you do when you're mad about aeroplanes. And I knew that the, I knew the people who ran the ground school because I'd done my course with them. And because I was in the right place at the right time, I was offered the job because I'd just qualified as a teacher, offered the job in the ground school at the Royal Aero Club rather than going out and becoming a teacher in a classroom. And that's the sort of job offer that you do not say no to. So I was just like, wow, this is the most incredible opportunity. So yes, I grabbed it with both hands and I started off just, you know, a few classes part-time and I built up to the point where I was teaching, not quite full-time, but I was teaching right up to commercial pilot theory level. And it was really challenging and it was brilliant teaching. And I didn't have any of those behavioral management issues that a normal teacher would have either. So it was just, I guess, a lot of luck and a, and and a little bit of good management there that got me that job. I have to laugh when you say you didn't have any of those behavioural management issues because you know you were teaching adults versus you know children or teenagers. Knowing some of the mustering pilots, both helicopter and fixed wing, uh, that I do, I can imagine that their theory teachers probably had a bit of a handful with them. So maybe you lo- you got quite lucky there. So when you finished uni and did that dip ed. It wasn't with the intention of being able to teach flying. That's just something, an opportunity that yeah. presented itself after the fact. Yeah. I love that. I love this idea of serendipity. You know, it wasn't something you'd planned and that you were working towards, but it just, it happened. And that's bringing two things that you wanted to do together in one. I, did you ever think you'd be able to do, combine those two things, flying and, and your teaching? No, no. I, I 
You know, it would be a long-distant dream. But when I started flying, as I said, I just didn't think I'd be able to land an aeroplane. So I wasn't thinking too far ahead. I was just focusing on, oh, my God, I'm never going to be able to do that. And then you'd get into the theory lessons and you see someone teaching, you think, oh, they must know so much. They must be so clever. And it didn't cross my mind that I'd be able to do something like that until the opportunity presented. And, um, you know, as a teacher, you know how to deploy the information you know how to teach you know the sort of the basic concepts involved and you can apply that to any situation so i applied it to aeronautics you're teaching flight theory what were the classes that you taught so i had to take students through a series of different levels depending on what license they were they were after but in a, in a nutshell, I'd started off, I'd teach aerodynamics, which was the principles of flight and how an aeroplane flies and what makes it stable and what makes it fast, what makes it slow, what makes it fall out of the sky, that sort of thing. And the general knowledge about aircraft. I'd also talk about four-stroke engines and how aircraft engines work, what sort of problems you might have in an aircraft engine and why do they occur and what you can do to prevent them. And... Then we'd have to touch on air law and recognize your legal responsibilities as a pilot, how long you're allowed to fly for, what are the rules when you've had a drink. There's eight hours between bottle and throttle, they say. And um, how many passengers can you carry? If you're a private pilot, how far can you go? What can you do? Can you get paid to fly? All those sorts of things that a pilot legally needs to comply with. Then I'd have, of course, a big unit on meteorology, how to read the sky. When is it safe to go out for a fly? When's the sky going to be bumpy? What sort of flying conditions are going to make you turn around and, and go back to your home base? How to, how to know what the wind's going to be so that when you're flying your aircraft at a certain heading, you have to allow for the wind, the crosswind. And so if you didn't allow for the crosswind, you would end up somewhere that you didn't plan to be in the first place because the aircraft would get blown off course. And the flight planning, how do we know that when I put four people in this aeroplane, how long is it going to take for the aircraft to get off the ground when I'm taking off? And what happens if I've got really heavy weight in the back? How is that going to affect the way the aircraft handles? There's so much involved in that and that that's a bit overwhelming. There's, there's heaps and it's a topic that you, you never learn the end of. You know, there's always something. There's always, you know, go back to Bernoulli's theory of how airflow goes. It speeds up through a tight space and things like that and how that applies to the wing of the aircraft. And not just that, it's the, the safety of flying as well. You can need to be really aware as a pilot. You need to be really aware of the things that can ruin your day. And a lot of those things that were, were taught in my course and a lot of understanding what you were getting yourself in for and, and taking your flying. It's not a hobby. Flying is deadly serious because you need to know exactly what you're doing in the air. If before something goes wrong, not if something goes wrong, before something goes wrong, you need to be able to predict possible scenarios or understand how a chain of events can happen. It starts off as a little problem that you just ignore and then that s snowballs into a bigger and bigger problem. Three or four things attach onto that particular problem and and it results in a disastrous day. And one of those things for pilots is get-home-itis. You, you've gone somewhere, you've landed, the weather's coming really bad 
and you really got to get home. So you take a chance and you just fly home. No, that's, you know, those sorts of things, learning how to become a really good pilot, how to ameliorate any problems that you might have and how to enjoy the flying, you know, have that deep understanding of exactly what keeps the aircraft up there and, um, and how to just really make the most of that pilot's license that you go and get. I've heard a number of times from different people, oh, no, you don't have to be that bright to be a pilot. Like, because I've said, oh, no, that's really hard. I don't think I could do it. Oh, no, no, you don't have to be that smart to get your pilot's license. And then they'll use somebody as an example, you know, oh, if Bob can do it, trust me, you can do it. And I think it's not just about your academic smart. So it's there's so much going on there. Here's me. I sometimes go through a roundabout, forget what gear I'm in in my car, and I'll be going through in fourth gear and my car, you know, almost conks out. Yeah, it's not. I do think, you know, maybe maybe it's just a bit of a, a, a joking around thing and they say you don't have to be that bright. But I I think you've got to have some level of smartness, but also just like life sense and and problem solving and that I guess that always continuously being able to, you know, adjust to as things change and and this is why, ladies and gentlemen, I'm behind a microphone and not behind a I don't know, what do you call it in an airplane? It's not a steering wheel. Control is it? column. Okay, cool. Cause I know like, you know, like in a helicopter well, no, I'm getting confused. You've got like your cyclical or your, there's another one. I really should know this having worked for a helicopter company, but you know, you've got that thing. But I was like, yeah, it's not a, it kind of is like a steering wheel in a, in an airplane though, but not a full circle. Like it's the two little bits either side. And if you're on the ground and you move that steering wheel, the aircraft doesn't turn. You've got to change the direction with the foot pedals when you're, when you're taxiing along the runway. Yeah, I'm not. Um, yeah. yeah. So, let's yeah. all just be okay. grateful that I'm on the, the ground. Car. Yeah. <laughs> when even then, let's be honest, that's probably a bit, <laughs> a bit iffy. Why you, you taught flight theory. So that was when everyone's on the ground. You weren't an instructor up in the sky, which again, hats off to anyone who's game enough to get in an aircraft that someone else is learning to fly in. Like that's ballsy. Why, why did you decide to do one and not the other? Was it that you, you know, that was risky and like you didn't want that level of risk of, because I know I'm sure as hell wouldn't be doing that. Oh, no, I would have loved that level of risk. I really would have. And when you're teaching students, you do have dual controls. So you yeah, can still- say, okay, student, I have control <laughs> and you can fix the problem. But um, no, I, it was because I couldn't afford to get, get – I was building slowly towards the the flying instructor dream. And I don't know that – I may not have ever got there. I might have – gone off on a di- different flying job tangent, but um, it, it wasn't because I didn't want to. It's just because the opportunity hadn't presented itself. And um, But the fact that I was in the ground school completely and utterly immersed in aviation for, for a long time, um, it, it made it, it – it, the opportunity would have presented itself had I stayed there. Now, it's nothing new that sometimes the best laid plans get, you know, waylaid and interrupted. And often that can be by the arrival of a significant other, whether it's male or female. It was during your time teaching flight school or flight theory that you met your future husband, Ash. Tell us how that all came to be. Well, on the books, I see this guy booked in called Ashley Dowden, and I knew he was from a station up north and he didn't have much time to do his licence because um, he only could only get away for a couple of weeks, so he had to smash it all out in these couple of weeks. He'd already done his restricted licence and he was coming down to do his private licence. And, of course, he couldn't take his flight test until he'd passed his theory exam. So rather than join one of my classes that just happened 
twice a week, I think we had classes. He came in and he booked in with me as a private student. So I had this booking for this guy called Ashley Dowden as a private student. He walks in and I thought, oh, he's, he's kind of good looking. And then as you do, you develop a rapport with your students before you start teaching them. And he told me that he was from a station and, um, and it was a sheep station and he was the president of the race club. And, you know, he was telling me a bit about his, his story and his background. I'm thinking, wow. This is, this is, I'm pretty lucky to have met this guy. He seems, he's really nice guy and, you know, he's one of those, <laughs> oh, isn't he handsome kind of thing? <laughs> I love this. But of all, yeah, that you can have a student. I just think you, you think, and every time I sit on an aeroplane, I'm like, and you wait for the person that's going to come sit next to you. I'm like, maybe this is the flight. A cute boy is going to come sit next to me has not happened yet and I've been on like almost 200 commercial flights in my life. Not yet, not yet. I had, had a couple of drunk people, a couple of really smelly people, no cute boys. You have a cute boy walk into your class as a student. How do you, so how do you and tell me about, you know, was he a good student? Did he listen to what you have to say? You know, how do you keep focused when you're going, oh, he's so cute, you know, and like, you know, if you get something wrong, you you like, do you treat him different? You're like, oh no. And you know, trying not to bruise his ego. Like, how do you balance all of that? Oh, look, I maintained my professional integrity, at least for the first while. <laughs> um, but he was one of the most argumentative students I'd ever have. Yeah. We were talking about meteorology and some crazy reason he thought he knew more than I did about meteorology. And I had to put him in his place pretty quick. And when we started talking about aircraft engines, that's the time when I said, okay, I know you know a lot more than I do about engines because you're obviously a really practical guy and you've grown up with engines. But listen to me because I know what's in the exam and don't argue with me because that's not in the exam. And if you answer that that way, if you answer that your way, you may not get your pilot's license. So sit down, shut up and do as you're told. And also take me to dinner. Yeah. <laughs> Look, the sparks were flying. We had a, we did, we were instant rapport. So there was no dramas there and we were talking the same language. We were on the same level. It was, it was quite clear that we had a lot in common. So I was able to get to that joking kind of a relationship with him really quickly. Whereas another student, I wouldn't have got away with saying some of the cheeky things that I said to them. And and so he was doing – he'd booked in to see you every day for two weeks? Yeah, and there were some days that I was, wasn't was rostered on to work, so very kindly I said to him, look, I know you're rushing to get this pilot's licence done. How about – if you if you don't mind, you can come up to my place for a couple of hours and we can just do another lesson, you know. And we did. That's – we did. We did the flying lesson – yeah, we talked about what we had to talk about so he could pass the exam. And then what? <laughs> and then it was quite clear, you know, um, that, that there was something between us. It, there was, it, there was no doubt we were developing a sort of a special bond in those early days. And it didn't take long for that bond to reveal itself either. We, for months and months and months, I'd be planning, I'd been planning to fly up to Landor for the races. And I'd organized my aircraft. I had my nav organized and my navigator, a guy that had, was supposed to tell me which way to go, turned out to be a bit of a dud navigator, but that's okay. We did get to Landor and Ashley was also planning to go to Landor. And so we did fly up to Landor in separate aircraft, but we flew back in the same one. <laughs> kind of like a funny little marriage. <laughs> 
Ashley, you said you, you'd seen on the books, you know, he was from up north on a station. What did you know about cattle stations at that stage? Because I'm sure it probably wasn't in your plan to go and fall in love with a cowboy, you know? Well, funny you should say that. I'd actually spent my gap year working at Balfour Downs Cattle Station in the Pilbara, so I had a reasonable idea of, from a Jillaroo's point of view, what a cattle station was. And um, it really, I really loved it. I remember writing a poem. I'll just see if I can remember a couple of the lines. I'd I'd had to come back down because I'd come off a horse and broken a bone. Oh, mother dear, I'm home now, but what a painful sight. Another broken bone, mum. Poor old Toby took a fright. So I've packed my swag, I've rolled my swag and packed my bags and come with saddened frowns because you see, mum dear, I left my heart up there at Balfour Downs or something like that. And the poem goes on to, to talk about how it could be in the scrubbers, in the, in the deep scrub where the thickest, oh, I don't know. I might, I might even pull the poem out, see if I can find it and read you a couple of lines. And so I absolutely loved it up at Balfour Downs, but it was only for a, a short period of time and you know, really, um, there wasn't that many good opportunities to work on stations. So I came back to Perth and started doing uni. It was a, it was a gap year project. So I did know about cattle stations. I did have a great fondness for the industry. Tell me more about your time at Balfour Downs, you secret life of a Jillaroo. <laughs> I was a horseback muster. And so we would, um, hop on the horses very early in the morning and the horses were the, kept close to the cattle. So all of the helicopter and the buggies and everything would go and bring the cattle into a central area and the horses would hold the cattle and then we'd start driving them along. And you used horses to hold the cattle because it kept them a lot quieter. But I remember the boss saying, whatever you do, do not get off your horse because, you know, the wild scrub bulls will come and chase you. And you think, oh, how am I ever going to go to the toilet? And um, we'd spend eight or ten hours in the saddle driving a mob of cattle and just did that day in, day out. And then, of course, the processing of the cattle in the yards and being in the yards with the cattle and having to always watch your back and make sure that you were really quick to run up fences if you needed to be. And um I remember we used to – one of my jobs was to keep the branding fire hot, and that was such a hard job. We used to hot brand the cattle back in those days, and we used to throw the calves and hold them for their – you know, to be doctored. And, um, we used to draft cattle off and you'd bring some cattle back to the house yards to be trucked out and hold them, holding them in the house yards and feeding them and all those sorts of things that you do on a cattle station. I'm just trying to put the pieces together here because I know you didn't grow up on a farm and you did say that, that time. So the Carawan Gorge you spoke of at the start of this episode, that's, not all that far from Balfour. It's out Marble Barway, so Telfer. Uh, and, and Balfour is just east of Newman. But what I'm just, how do you go from, I don't know, being a high school student to coming out in a cattle station when, you know, you weren't a farm kid? I always loved horses. And even though I wasn't, I didn't grow up on a farm, I loved farming and we had a little hobby farm and we had chooks and, goats and and a milking cow and things like that so and any chance I got if some friend or relation had a farm I'd be out there as often as I could I loved agriculture I loved farming anything to do with farm animals and so you finish high school and you're thinking oh, I really don't want to go to uni straight away and 
a job in the newspaper back in those days. You got jobs out of newspapers. And I wrote a letter to apply for this job as a Dillaroo. Because I'd had so much horse riding experience, that's what they were looking for, a horseback muster, because horses are my other passion in life. And um, they they gave me the job. So I remember I jumped on a bus and we took this big, long bus ride up to Newman and the boss picked me up from Newman Town site and then we went out to Balfour Downs and um, that was it. I was actually out there with another another woman called Debbie. So I was Big Deb and she was Little Deb and we are still friends to this day. It's funny because if you were telling this story, if this had happened any time in the last 15 years, it would be pretty easy to label it McLeod's daughter syndrome. Horsey girl from down south goes out to work on a cattle station. She wants to live out her McLeod's daughter's dream. But when you did this, McLeod's daughter's was, you know, probably 10, 20 years off even coming on TV. Like, but it was still a thing back then. It was still a thing back then because I was just really loved the horses and cows, cowboy kind of a lifestyle. And as a woman, there weren't that many opportunities to get a job on a station riding horses and this Balfour Downs were particularly looking for women because they said women are better on the gear. So even though women weren't as strong, they, they wanted Jillaroos because they're, they're better on the gear. They didn't break as much stuff. And so I was really lucky to have the opportunity to live out the McLeod's daughter's dreams. But it was so different back then because I couldn't just go on Facebook or the internet and Google Balfour Downs and read the reviews and, you know, we didn't know. I was going out into the middle of nowhere with a man I did not know. So the the boss, he was married. He turned out to be fine. But before I went, my dad actually phoned up the Newman police station and said, look, my daughter, my beautiful 17-year-old daughter is going up to Balfour Down Station. Is she going to be okay? Because that's the sort of thing that, that a good dad does. And you didn't have the access to the internet information that you do these days so it was a bit of a risk but as I said I'm not I'm not scared of a bit of risk I've kind of got that little bit of that little risky edge where I love the adrenaline and I love I love to just you know have a crack at something and don't worry if it doesn't work out let's just have a crack so was it the like you you alluded to the lack of opportunities for women back then is this is this 90s or 80s 90s early 90s probably i it was 1984 oh god wow look at me i'm i probably just took 10 years off your age you're Thank welcome you. well you're very welcome I, I should have actually said 94 in yeah <laughs> so yeah there were not as many opportunities for women i suppose to progress and and i guess it wasn't as common as it is today to see women in the camp or on different roles in the station is that why you ended up in, you know, at uni doing your teaching and the doing the stuff with the Aero Club and your pilot's license rather than coming back for just more and more, like coming back the next year and the year after that to keep working on stations? Yeah, really. Um, I um, there, there would have been women working on stations, but again, pre-internet age, all you've got is your own lived experience. And so I was out riding horses. I remember we had to change a lot of buggy tires, um, fixing tires. We'd spend our day off with a big pile of tires with punctures. We had to go through and fix every one of them. And, um, it was, it was a great job, but it wasn't something that would be a really good practical career choice for a young woman who you've got to think about the future and, um, Really, the, the options were fairly limited for women back then. This was a gap year, hell of a lot of fun kind of experience. 
rather than a long-term career choice. It's funny, though, that, you know, I don't know, five, six, seven years later, you meet Ash, though, on his office station. How I want, I want to hear a little bit more about, you know, the love story. When you, when you guys, you know, you said it was pretty quick, you realised there was something there, but he lives, you know, six hours away from where you are. How do you go with, you know, dating and, you know, how does that all work when you're so far apart, but you've got such a strong connection? The the strong connection, I guess, fast-tracked me moving up here. And again, risk-taking, don't mind, you know, have a crack. If it doesn't work out, it doesn't matter. And um, so it, it was only a matter of months before I came up to Challa for the first time. And um, I came up just for a, a brief period of time, about a week or something like that. I can't remember. And in between that, I knew that he was working on, on a nearby station, so I grabbed an aeroplane with a friend and just flew in for, for a day and said hello kind of thing and then flew off. Um, so having that connection with the aeroplanes did make you a little bit more mobile or a little, you know, a little less time between. But even then, the connection was so strong every time I caught up with him that we, we really had to progress it. There was no denying what we had and we really, it wasn't going to work if I'd stayed in Perth at my job at the Royal Aero Club. So the saddest thing I did was leave that job. But the fan- most fantastic thing I did was move up here with Ashley. I don't want to sound too corny, but um, I want to say it sounds like things are moving at a at a speed. No, is it at a rate of knots? Is that is that like a phrase or something? That's a that's a good aeronautical it, term, really. Yeah, at a, at a rate, at a, I don't know, a rate of knots or something. You know, things are moving along. You know, at a good at a good pace. Yeah, yeah, we'll stick with rate of knots. So you meet, um, you realise there's something there. You start spending some time up here, then you move up here full time. I'm guessing, you know, if we're if we're sticking to this kind of um, speed of things that there was probably an engagement at some point. Well, I know there was because you're married yeah, today. But, yeah, you there know. was there was an engagement. It, in all honesty, I knew within three days of meeting Ashley that he was going to be my husband and I told my housemate that. I said, I'm going to marry this guy. And um, But I didn't tell Ashley that because he probably would have run a mile, but I just knew. And it wasn't actually that long before Ashley proposed. And then, of course, you have an engagement party in the bush, and it's a really big event. So that's the sort of thing that you plan months in advance. And so we had this fantastic party here at Challa, and the whole district came, and we did speeches, and we, you know, it was so much fun. And um, And then we had the wedding, and we decided because – Aeroplanes had brought us together that we should have our reception at the Royal Aero Club. So we were married at Hale School, which is where Ashley went to school, and we drove down in the limo to the Aero Club. And we had this fantastic party with where we combined our station friends with our with my school or uni friends and with the all the fantastic people who worked at the Aero Club. And we just had such a great night. And then to top off that night, a couple of our flying commercial pilot friends had organized a twin engine aircraft so we left the reception walked down onto the tarmac into this twin engine aircraft and flew out to Perth airport and we got special landing we landed at Perth airport and take got taken through the special VIP gates to our um to our waiting limo and onto the hotel it was so cool that is so fitting that rather than getting you know some car with your I don't know, streamers and cans, you know, rattling off the back and drive away that you guys just flew off in an aeroplane together. And actually for our 25th wedding anniversary, 
we did a night flight to sort of commemorate that flight. So we went up and we had a commercial pilot take us all around um, the city and and over. Oh, it was just so beautiful. Could you? Is is it a thing? So you know, when often when people like they leave the church or whatever, and the car is decorated with all the stuff, the streamers and the balloons and whatever hanging off it. Can you do that on an airplane, or is that going to cause an accident? No, you you really can't. You really can't because it affects the aerodynamics of the aircraft and. It, and, uh, but people were all joking about us joining the Mile High Club. When oh, we left. oh, God. <laughs> that would have been scary. I don't know if autopilot was the thing back then, but that's probably one way to cause an accident. If there's only two of you in there and there's no one no, else to No, no, we had two pilots in command, uh, in control of oh, the aircraft, and we were the passengers. Oh, okay. So, well, yeah. Ooh, but yeah. no, we didn't join the Mile High Club. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly can't decide if I love your story or if I just want to like bury it in a bookshelf somewhere because um like it's so it's so amazing and I'm like okay well it's it's setting a standard for me and I'm and and you guys are still so in love today it's it's kind of gross um <laughs> and I'm like no is is this like a one in a lifetime thing are you giving me unrealistic standards here because this is like a bit of a fairy tale so I just don't know if I'm like oh yeah this is amazing and then I set this off as my standard going forward or if I need to just be like, okay, well, that's a nice story, but Steph, not realistic. Come on, put it in a shelf. Doesn't this happen to everybody? <laughs> I don't, I don't think so. I do know a few people still very much in love though, but I do love, I, I, this feels like it could be a bit of a, a bit of a plot for a movie. Just throw in a few, look, there's got to be some kind of big drama in there. We might have to invent one, but we could probably base a movie off, off some of the aspects but of your love story. is Top Gun. He's oh. Tom Cruise and I'm Kelly McGillis. Oh, there you go. There's a ready made movie. Oh, you must, you must. And then, and then you gotta think of me and Ashley when you're watching it. <laughs> and then I'll be waiting for Ashley to jump on the, on the couch saying how much he loves you if he's gonna like, you know, be the next Tom Cruise. That's so right. after this amazing wedding, obviously you'd already moved out to Chala. You did have to give up your job as a flight theory instructor. What about the horses though? Because you said before you, you were pretty horse mad. Uh, but also quite aeroplane mad. Being out here, there, there are a lot of stations that use horses, but this part of the country, it's not a massive thing, not, not as it is in other areas. So did you have to kind of say goodbye to horses as well as aeroplanes? No way. I just married a man with enough room for me to put dozens of horses on. Woo. It's just like, no, no, I had one very, very special horse back then. And um, beautiful buckskin mare I called Fizzy. And so I only had one horse. So she came up with me and we moved up here and she adapted really, really well to this environment. And I had her here for probably 10 years or so before she was so old that, yeah, Ashley had to put her down for me one day. And that was a really awful experience. But after Fizzy, I I was horseless for a little while and I really didn't like that. And so I started to look for other breeds that might might come somewhere close to the quality of this horse. And I had a few horses and they just didn't work out. And um, then I came across this horse that was for sale down in Perth. She was a first cross Morgan. And I thought, oh, yeah, Morgan horses, they're real good horses. So I said to the lady, okay, I'm going to come down next weekend and have a look. But in the meantime, that Morgan horse got sold and I'm like, Ah, oh, so another serendipitous moment. That horse got sold. I was really annoyed because I thought it was going to be an amazing horse. And I was on the internet. 
and I found an advert for a almost pure, so 15 sixteenths purebred Morgan Gelding, six-year-old, unbroken, and I thought, wacko, what a brilliant horse. But he was in Victoria. Oh, no, what do I do? So I had some Morgan friends in Victoria, and I said, could you just go and have a look at this horse for me? And um, they had a look, and they said, yeah, he seems really nice. Uh, so I bought him, and then I told Ashley. And apparently that's not the correct order that you do it in because you're supposed to oh, – some discussion first, I don't know, some rubbish about – but I knew it's easier to get forgiveness than permission in this case. So I bought the horse, told Ashley, and for a little while after that, he was referred to as the divorce horse. But luckily, the marriage survived that terrible, terrible incident, terrible <laughs> crime that I'd committed. And I brought this horse up here and he's amazing. So one Morgan leads to another. They're like a box of chocolates. You just can't stop at one Morgan. So I ended up developing a Morgan stud here at Chalice Station. So I never looked at the station as being a barrier to breeding horses because a horse that grows up in country like this, it has such an amazing life. It almost lives like a wild horse, but it's tame. And so my horses live out in 10,000-acre paddock, and so the foals will follow their mothers for 20 k's at a time, and they're laying down all this bone. They're they're growing up as really well-balanced, normal horses who can cope with uneven ground. They gallop over the roughest country. They they learn to play in amongst sticks and holes and stones. They develop really good bone. They have a, a life of freedom like a wild horse. And to me, the horses that don't have the opportunity to grow up on a station are the ones that just don't have that same life advantage even the food here, people come up here and say, what do your horses eat? There's no grass. Well, there is grass sometimes when it rains, but my horses, they browse like the, like horses were intended to back in the days when they developed through the Asian continent. They, they were browsers. They didn't graze on grass. They, they chose different vegetation. They browsed on bushes and shrubs and trees and a bit of grass. So this is really a wild horse lifestyle brought into a modern day life and I think I've got the combination of both really positive aspects by breeding horses here. You mentioned that that first Morgan that you bought was named the divorce horse. How has Ashley taken to this, you know, he's, he's got a, well, it was a sheep station, now it's a cattle station, but he's got a fair, well, at different points in time, had a fair number of horses here too. Ashley's always ridden horses and I've seen photos of him as a little boy tacking a shoe onto a horse and that sort of thing. So his grandfather taught him to ride. There's always been horses at Challa. Even when I first moved up here, Ashley had a horse that he was allegedly going to use for polo cross, but I never once saw him play a game of polo cross on this horse. So he's always had an interest in horses. For me, it, it it's always been a passion. For Ashley, it's always been an interest. So I guess the horses came to this property and and Ashley was pretty happy to have horses. And even now, he always makes jokes about the horses, but he's really supportive with my horse journey. He does like horses, even though he's not obsessed like I am. And he's he, he understands very strongly that the horses are an integral part of this station because it keeps me happy and Happy wife, happy life, okay? And it, it gives me a purpose, breeding all of these horses and riding them and training them. We use them on the cattle now, of course, 
and it gives me a purpose and it gives me an area of specialty. Whereas the whole rest of the station, he's so good at everything on the station. So if like if there's a decision to be made about a windmill, well, Ashley decides because he knows everything about windmills. But with the horses, that's my little passion and my little side sideline, I guess, because I'm the one that knows a lot more than he does about horses because I've immersed myself in horses my whole life. But the synergy of Ashley and I working with horses, he's great. He's so supportive. He will do their feet for me as long as I don't ask for a set of shoes. He'll help me if there's a sick or injured horse and he goes out of his way to make sure that my horses are a part of this station. We've only covered a short uh, part of your life in this episode today, um, you know, from kind of being a teenager to coming out and getting married and then just briefly touched on things that have happened. And it, and it really is just a, a very small part of a much bigger story. What I've kind of taken away from or what I'm ob- observing from our chat, though, is this idea of, you know, you're taking life one step at a time and and this idea that I suppose what I'm trying to say is you, you had a plan in a way for, you know, your pilot's license and all that and things of, you know, life has taken you in other directions but by by focusing on things kind of, um, you know, taking things one step at a time, I feel like that's what's allowed you to move into all these other things with ease. What are your thoughts on the stories that you've told today and that part of your life? It's funny because um, it's almost like my destiny has been fulfilled with all of the things that led up to me meeting Ashley. And it, it's, so for example, if I hadn't ever done my pilot's license, I would not have met him. If I hadn't lived on a station before I did my pilot's license, then I wouldn't have loved stations. If I hadn't gone on that geology trip, I wouldn't have found that passion that I have for, for the, for this rangelands area. And I was a qualified teacher. I could ride a motorbike. I could ride a horse. I loved cattle work. I loved sheep work, loved everything. And all of that aside, you know, I was pursuing a career in aviation because that was the most awesome opportunity I had at the time. Then Ashley came along and presented me with an even more awesome opportunity, which seemed to bring together all of my passions and all of my hopes and dreams into this one new area that I'd never, ever imagined would present itself. It feels a little odd to ask you the question that I I ask almost everyone at the end of the episode because we have only discussed like, you know, one part of your life and not not the whole and there's there's so much more and there's going to be a lot of context that we will get to in another episode. But for this part, looking back on your story, what would you say is the takeaway lesson? I think that even if you think you know what you want to do, destiny has a way of shaping your life so that you end up where you're supposed to end up at the end of the day. It's almost as though things happen for a reason. And it's almost as though if you deny where you're supposed to be going, then things don't work out as well for you. I don't know. It It just seemed ridiculously serendipitous that I met Ashley. It was like the book had already been written 
and that was the ending and and that's where it was supposed to end up but I was a character in the middle of the book progressing along not knowing what was going to happen at the end of the story but just going oh yeah I'll just I'll just go learn to fly woohoo this would be great fun and oh yeah I've got this cool job teaching aeronautics woohoo that's great fun let's do that and without really knowing what the what the destination would be you just you just can't can't control your destiny I suppose you know you can work within the bounds of what life gives you but at the at the end of the day you end up where you're supposed to end up